This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Philip Singh, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. See how we're focusing on our one planet with six commitments. See the Good Growth Plan at www.goodgrowthplan.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Red meat exports are a key to the viability of the U.S. meat industry. Philip Singh, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, says 15% of U.S. beef production and 25% of pork production is sold globally each year. The result is an export dividend of $85 per animal for pork and $275 per head for beef. Singh says success with the Trans-Pacific Partnership would provide the U.S. meat industry even greater access to growing demand from a booming global middle class of customers. Definitely the pie is getting getting bigger over the last 20 years. Uh, in exports, uh, the growth in, in beef and pork and poultry consumption has been almost at the tune of, of anywhere ranging between 3 to 5% per annum. And as you know, in the United States, we've been flat to, to actually declining as far as total consumption, per capita consumption. So the growth area for the industry is definitely the international marketplace. And as we look at some of these markets, uh, the value that they, that they bring to the industry, this year we're going to break a value record. We're going to export over $13 billion almost $13.5 billion worth of meat. So uh, if, if you, uh, the numbers are for 2014, we exported $150 billion, and uh, we're, we're at uh, almost uh, $13.5 billion. So, uh, you know, we're, we're getting to be larger and larger in the scheme of things as far as uh, the whole of U.S. agriculture and what, what the meat complex brings to, to the black line uh, for us in the industry. Well, the cattle herd is the smallest since the 1950s, and the swine herd has obviously been challenged with PEDV over the past year, although... We certainly hope that there's been recovery. So I would ask you in a two-part question, is supply an issue? And second of all, what about the value of the dollar at a nine-year high? How is supply and how is dollar value affecting your ability uh, to maintain and to grow markets for U.S. red meat? Well, obviously, the supply situation is a concern to us, both in the beef and the pork complex. I would say, uh, as far as the beef complex is concerned, we know that we have one of the lowest beef herds we've had in 50 years. And, of course, that's the demand that's growing internationally has, has uh, I think, really been strong. And, and, and what we're seeing is the, the international buyers are willing to outbid maybe U.S. buyers for certain cuts of beef, and some cuts of beef we only export. So it's been very, very important in that respect. As far as pork is concerned, yes, we, we have seen uh, pork prices at a very high level as a result of domestic factors, but, but nonetheless, demand internationally for pork is still continuing to grow. So uh, even though the, 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 there's things, for example, the dollar that has become much more dear in the last, in the last year, especially uh, vis-a-vis the yen and some other currencies, of course, that makes our product more expensive for them to buy. And that's why, as we work in the trade area and we reduce tariffs and reduce, reduce border protection, even though you have these undulations in the in the exchange rates uh, by having less border protection, less less tariffs, for example. Uh, this does make it more competitive for us. So I say there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges, but there's also a lot of good things that are going on that I think will, uh, for the future make us competitive far into the future. The other thing that we've been able to do and we work on continually is extolling the value and the quality of our products and the 
consistency of our products. This is known to foreign buyers, and especially in, in a lot of these markets, uh, this is one of the things that even though there's price undulation, if you will, or price escalation, uh, people stay with the U.S. product, and that's why we're breaking records each year as far as our beef and our pork exports. What about a competition? Uh, Australia, New Zealand, who are the players who are, who are gunning for market share? Well, I would have to say that right now Australia on the beef complex is probably our, without a doubt, our most formidable um, exporter uh, and competitor. Uh, I always look at Australia as a, as a major competitor, and, 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 and they've been, from the time we had BSE, they launched their Safe and Clean campaign. Uh, when we take a look at what they're doing um, internationally, uh, especially here with the EPA they have now with uh, with Japan, their duties going to go down 8%. They'll be at uh, 30.5%. And uh, they're and that's continuing to decline. So they're getting, as time goes on, they're getting more competitive because of their EPA with Japan. Uh, and then of course our dollar is stronger, and uh, our prices are higher. So so when we take a look at this, Australia is a very very strong competitor. On the pork complex, our most formidable competitor would be the European Union at this point in time. Um, you know, if we just take Japan as an example, the total market is up 11 percent. So it's a growing market. It's up 11 percent this year over last year. But um, but basically we're at zero. We're 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 holding our own from 13 uh, to 2014. But if you take a look at, for example, the main EU suppliers, and they lost the Russian market, so they took all their energy and they focused it in Asia. The Denmark's up 22 percent in Japan. Spain's up 96 percent. Austria's up uh, 105 uh, percent. Hungary's up 59 percent, and Germany's up 178 percent. So what happens is these markets are so competitive. And the, and the world knows where the world's largest export market is, Japan. And so you see this intense competition. This is continually playing out for us. So the competition factor is, is something that you have to almost see to believe because we just don't have that here. Uh, we don't have Hungarian pork and Italian pork and Spanish pork and any German pork. The, 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 we, we don't compete against these folks here, but internationally we do. So that's why we need resources and we need this commitment continually uh, in order to, to, to gain our rightful market share in these markets. Phil, I'd like to, to drift to another area. Talk about the middle class. When we, when we talk about the growth for food, fiber, and fuel, obviously there's going to be more people coming to the planet. But I want to think for red meat production, the real influx of demand is from that middle class that has grown. And from what I understand, talking to government officials, it is the continued and expected growth of the middle class that makes agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership so important for U.S. agriculture. That's right. It makes it very important because obviously with a growing middle class, what that means is disposable income is going up. And as that income goes up, they become more more eclectic in their buying habits. And so they're looking to, to gravitate from the cereals to the proteins. And obviously if we're in these areas with with our beef, with our pork, with our processed meats, with our lamb, uh, this is a very viable alternative for these folks. And a lot of these markets, especially in Asia, they don't have the land mass and they don't have the ability to grow large cow herds. And they have uh, laws, for example, that don't allow them to grow very large when it comes to pork production. For example, Singapore has banned all pork production in Singapore. You don't have any pork production that goes on in Hong Kong, but these are major markets. So I think as these middle classes continue to grow, the more that we can work in these markets, the more vertically we can become involved in these markets. And I would say that these markets are very still relational. They're not transactional. You have to go there. You have to meet the people 
people. You have to work your way into it because that's what your competition is doing. So we work in the area of market development, but also we work in the area of market displacement, trying to displace this competition that we have, especially now from Europe in these Asian markets. But the, the growing middle class is, is, is very exciting for us as far as the red meat industry is concerned. Can you put some numbers to that? Because Secretary Vilsack was sharing some, some really astounding numbers of the middle class in that Asian region and just gave greater emphasis to why the industry really, really needs to focus there. Well, over the next over the next ten years, sixty five percent of the world's middle class will be in Asia. So I think that that alone, and, and as you travel to Asia, if you just have a two year hiatus between one trip to the next, you can see tremendous growth. You see the construction. You see just the improvements. You see the improvements in the retailing and the food service sector. I mean, these areas are growing dramatically. And and I think the the other thing about Asia, there's different degrees of development. Like if you go to a Japan or a Korea or a Thailand, want, but as you get into these markets, as you're developing, you can jump technologies. So you can go from basically maybe a, uh, an abacus to, to calculate right right to a supermarket scanner. So the, the speed at which this is and the velocity at which this change is occurring is dramatic. And that's why, again, uh, being in these markets, being a factor in these markets, that's why checkoff dollars and, and, and government dollars and, and everything that we can do to take a look at these markets and, and be a factor in these markets is important. And I will say, if you're going to be if you're going to be a factor in these markets, you have to be in the market, and um, that's why I think the, the MEF, with our offices and with the, our, our seasoned uh, employees that we have in these markets, it's a, it's an excellent avenue for the industry to use uh, as far as trying to advance their interests further and deeper into these markets. This middle class, what cuts of meat are they buying? Are they low end and ground beef, or are they organ meats, or do they want the muscle cuts that everybody else in the U.S. wants? Well, it varies by countries, uh, but you'll, you'll see, and you know, speaking generally speaking, basically everything. Uh, the Chinese have a tradition of, of, of eating everything, and so the offals, uh, the muscle cuts, uh, some muscle cuts are different than others, as we know, like when pork, Japanese like the loins, uh, but they, but they also import a lot of bellies, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, CT bus, they, they import, uh, a lot of picnics, and so as we look around Asia, uh, the demand for our cuts are, are dramatic, and it's the same thing on the beef side. There isn't any one cut that you'd have to say would be would be supreme. And the short plate probably is one of the most popular, but they're still using a lot of middle meats. Just being in Japan last week, I, I'm, I'm seeing this proliferation of actual steak restaurants that's growing. So uh, I think as we as we look at these markets, I think that's what makes it so exciting, because the volumes they buy are by the container, and uh, and, and really one of the concerns right now. As, as we talked about in, in initially, is is the supply. You know, they, they want to make sure they have this guaranteed supply because the growth is growing that quickly. I value your opinion here because with regard to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, clearly the U.S. and Japan are at loggerheads on some issues because it doesn't appear the Japanese really wants to open their market to all the places that the U.S. wants to be a part of. In that situation, who's going to blink? Well, I think that, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, a negotiation, you know, uh, is implies, uh, number one, that both sides are going to 
give in some areas. And I think that the, the Japanese have, in their own mind, have made huge concessions. And I, I know it's not it's not perfect, but as far as they are concerned, and as far as their political system is concerned, um, they have they've done a lot already uh, coming forward. That doesn't mean there's not more that they can do. And I think that's what our government is trying to do is is try to extract every every possibility and everything they can to get the most modern and up to date uh, agreement that, that we can possibly get. You know, but, but you know, it, it's it's very difficult because their whole political system is predicated a lot on the farm vote. Uh, a lot of what the what the, the mechanisms that are in Japan today are mechanisms that were introduced. The co-op system, for example, the cooperative system, that was introduced by MacArthur. That was back in the days of the occupation, back in the 50s. So, to some degree, we're trying to dismantle various mechanisms in Japan that we actually instituted 60, 70 years ago. So, there's a lot. There's a lot that's uh, involved in this whole process, and it's hard to change something that's been. It's like a tree that's been dug in for 70 years. It's kind of hard to get it out, and so I think I give our government a lot of credit. I give our industry a lot of credit for staying steadfast in this area, but that's what it takes when you deal with the Japanese. I mean, they're they're very good negotiators. They know what they're doing. They know what their interests are, and they're and and it's a it's a negotiation, and it's it's the same thing where every time a meat company goes to Japan or goes to for that matter any countries around the world, um, you know the buyers are tough. You negotiate price, you negotiate tonnages, you negotiate vis-a-vis your competition. All that that goes on in the private sector and just a normal transaction, that's going on now with our government and their government. So it's a, it's interesting, but TPP, it's 40% of the world's trade is involved in TPP. It's a huge, and with Japan in TPP, it makes it all the more attractive. Because, because without Japan in TPP, we already have trade agreements with about five or six of the countries that are involved in it. I think it's eight altogether. So, so really having Japan in TPP and negotiating with the Japanese is really significant. And we do have to press this issue because, as I say, for the beef folks, they're looking at Australia and they're going to be going with an 8% advantage on the tariff. Come come April 1st, there's another percent on that. That's 9% advantage. So what's, what's happening here from the beef industry, because because all the countries that we deal with, they're negotiating with other countries as well. Japan is negotiating, for example, with Europe. And, and with Europe, they've had eight sets of negotiations as far as negotiations with the EU. They concluded a deal here with Mexico. They've concluded they got an agreement with Canada. They have an agreement with Australia. So, so it's not like we're the only ones that are negotiating. So we have to be cognizant of what our competition is doing. We have to be cognizant of what our competition is doing as far as negotiations in their own FTAs with other countries, especially with competitive countries. So uh, when we take a look at this thing, it's a very interesting mosaic when you look at international trade and international industry and how we fit into that. And so far, we've done very well. Phil, as we talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, let's also look at the President's executive order and a new focus and a, and a thought by many that we should change our relationship with our neighbor to the south in Cuba. What can or what could the Cuban market mean for U.S. red meat? Cuban market, it's going to definitely be a major tourist destination. And a lot of the markets that were big factors in today, we started out selling in, a, in the tourist area. And so I, I would say the Cuban development model would be like a lot of other development models. It's going to take some time. And as we know, uh, the, the red meat that we sell, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, we, we sell a very, uh, how would I say, uh, an item that's a, a, a very much in demand, but, but it's also an expensive item for, a, for the average Cuban. So I think that what we look at is maybe initially the tourist market being probably the, the biggest market, and that's going to be going to be huge, the, the tourist market in Cuba. There's a lot of the hotels 
and a lot of groups are getting very active in there. On the other hand, Cuba still has one buying one buying vector. That's Alimport, one one company that's a government-run company that buys everything. So. It's not like we go to Cuba and we can just do business like we do it in the United States or Japan or Mexico. But that, but that, that will change over time. And obviously we, we're looking forward to that. I think, uh, we're also, also aware of the fact that, uh, that, uh, you know, the cold chain, the credit, all these things that go on with it, with our, our kind of product that we would sell in that market. These are issues that have to come up. So probably we'll be starting first selling to a lot of international groups that would have the capital and these types of things. But 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 it will develop, and and there'll be a lot of people who will be loaning money. There'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of development going on in Cuba. So I think it's going to be a very exciting place over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, but it'll be a development model, much like the other ones. Again, like I said, they can jump technologies. They'll move quickly on this stuff. And, and I think this is very good for the United States. I think it's it's very good for the U.S. to have a country that's 90 miles that we have relations with rather than we don't have relations with. So from the larger standpoint, uh, I think it's important that the, we, we've done this. And I think uh, the, the, the thing that's so disconcerting to me is we've had this embargo on from the United States for all these years. But all of our competitors, whether it be Canada, whether it be Mexico, whether it be Australia, they're all trading with Cuba, especially the Europeans. They've all been trading with Cuba. So they all have established routes. They have the contacts. They have the experience. So we got a lot of catching up to do. But but uh, I, I believe in the good old Yankee trader, and I think we'll do okay uh, once we once we get, get the go ahead to to really go in there in a meaningful way. Uh, our guest has been Phil Singh with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Phil, this is Open Mike, and the mic's yours. Well, I just like to say to all the producers and everyone who's listening that this uh, the international marketplace has really been a, a gold mine as far as the industry is concerned for a number of years, and we we look at the future with I think very bright lights and with eyes wide open because uh, what it what it means is, is tremendous profitability I think for the beef producer, the pork producer, the grain producer, and the oilseed producer. We see a lot of a lot of growth in the international marketplace. We see a growing middle class, and uh, I think from our standpoint, I just want to say thank you for the commitment. And it does take an industry commitment to be a factor in these international markets. So with that, I would just like to sign off and say, again, we appreciate it from the U.S. Meat Export Federation standpoint. And let's continue to break those export records every year. Our thanks to Philip Singh, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. See how we're focusing on our one planet with six commitments. See the Good Growth Plan at www.goodgrowthplan.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.